We are turning the page, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue our study of this really timely and challenging and important uh, New Testament epistle from the Apostle Paul. This, this church that has so many similarities to our, what, we, what we're experiencing in contemporary society and contemporary culture. So much of this instruction is, uh, at least for me, it's just hitting right at home and challenging me in very profound ways. But we, we turn the page now to chapter 11, and in, in, this, in this turning of the page to this next chapter, we really are introducing or stepping into a, a new section, if you will, in which the Apostle Paul is going to begin to address matters pertaining specifically to the gathered assembly in worship. Obviously, he's uh, been addressing that uh, uh, episodically and incidentally and illustratively as he's been teaching all along, but, but chapters 11 really through 14 specifically zero in on the believer or the collection of believers assembled together in the context of corporate worship. In, in chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, which is where we'll begin you'll see him dealing with the unique roles of men and women in the context of worship. As you get ahead in chapter 11, in verses 17 to 34, he'll begin to deal with proper practice of the Lord's Supper within the context of worship. And then you get to that seminal section of chapters 12 through 14, and you'll see him deal with the the proper place and exercise of spiritual gifts within the context of corporate worship. He picks up a little brief reference point to uh, the, the collection or the giving uh, uh, for, the, for the benefit of ministry uh, toward the end of the, the letter. But really, this section deals significantly with this, these important matters pertaining to corporate worship or the gathered assembly as they come together for worship and, and the work of the church. And it seems that Paul's driving concern throughout this, this section, it's clearly about bringing glory to God. Obviously, when you think about worship specifically, that's the whole point, is to glorify God. And, and in doing so, that, that bringing glory to God, it, 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 it allows us in our corporate gathering to reflect crucial aspects of the nature and character of God. Uh, this seems to be the, the theme that the Apostle Paul returns to. He, he's trying to drive home the point that as we gather in corporate worship, and whether that worship is being manifested in the context of how we engage in male and female specific activities, uh, and how we do that in the context of worship, or whether it's in the, in the taking and participation in the Lord's table, or even the broader exercise of a diversity of gifts within the body of Christ, he's really driving toward glorifying God as the body of Christ, and as we exercise these different works and activities and points of focus in our worship, that we would reflect God's nature, that we would reflect crucial aspects of God's character. In chapter 10, verse 31, of course, we have that summary statement where he says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that's how he sort of wrapped up the previous section that we were looking at. So it's all to the glory of God, as we know. But, but then he begins to talk about these aspects of 
of worship and the various ways that he wants us to be mindful of our participation in it, that it's to be characterized, uh, for example, by peace rather than contentiousness. A little snippet from chapter 11, verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. That this corporate worship is to be characterized by sacrificial love rather than individual recognition. Chapter 13, verse 13, through chapter 14, verse 1, and then chapter 14, verse 12, he says, So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. And then in chapter 14, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Why? Verse 12, so with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So there's this emphasis on the characteristic, the manifestation of love and sacrificial love, to be specific, rather than any notions of individual recognition, individual consumption, gathering for yourself, you know, affirmation and, and, you know, and and the kinds of things that would build you up, but rather this sacrificial love prompts you, even in the manifestation of the gifts that God has given you, so that you would be building up the church. And then it's to be characterized, this this corporate gathering in worship, it's to be characterized by clarity and order rather than confusion. You see this in chapter 14, verse 33, and then in verse 40. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. God is a a God of peace, not confusion. He is a God who, you go all the way back to the creation narrative, and what you see is that part of his character is to bring order out of chaos. And anywhere we see disorder persisting, we know that that is not the work of God. And what we also need to understand is, as we gather in worship, far be it from any church to be characterized by disorder, contentiousness, a lack of love, self-referential thinking and behavior, rather than building up others and building up the body of Christ, ultimately for the glory of God. And so these are some of the, the matters that the Apostle Paul really takes up or is really driving home. And all the various ways that he's going to address these things, this seems to be sort of the, the focus. This is what he's driving their attention to. Now, as I've chatted about uh, amongst many of you, especially the ladies, I know many of you have had nagging questions about head coverings and how long or short your hair should be, you men as well. So we're going to deal with that in chapter 11. Get excited. You're going to know how to inform your hairstylist or your barber. I'm kidding. You won't. We're going, to, we're going to deal with these matters that he raises in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 2. Some interesting and somewhat, to our minds, odd and unusual things that he's going to bring up, but we have to note that he's writing a letter to a specific context with specific things that have been raised and specific things that we're dealing with. And so we'll do our best to sort of unpack this over the next couple of weeks so that we can understand what are the, 
salient implications for us in our day and time. Let me just read the entire section to kind of get it framed up in our minds. And most of our time is going to be spent today sort of introducing uh, the primary thrust of this section. And then we'll begin next week to really dig in and start to unpack it. Starting in verse 2, of course, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 is the final verse, basically, in the section uh, that we wrapped up in, in chapter 10, where he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's sort of a summary verse. Uh, most scholars agree that that's really better uh, aligned with chapter 10. And as you know, chapter divisions and that kind of thing weren't a part of the original manuscript. So nevertheless, the, this section obviously begins in chapter 11, verse 2. He says, now I commend you. Because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair, cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. You guys all set? (laughs) Some really, to our minds, odd information being conveyed here, right? Um, You may be reading this passage and thinking, "I, I... I don't know what to do about my hair right now, or, uh, you know, I certainly don't have head covering on, so am I shaming my head? I mean, it's just a lot going on here, but what I want to draw your attention to, just as a point of reference, we'll dig into it a little bit more as we go forward, but notice at the very beginning, he says, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. This this statement about traditions is not some kind of... um, negative reference. It's two practices or customs that are a part of the worship of the New Testament church that he's introducing. But then he goes into some very specific matters. You can tell by the way, by the reading of this, is it not in fact true that when you read this, you're like, he's, he's talking about things that like, there's already a conversation going on. There's already dialogue happening. And as we know, there is a letter that, from Paul to the Corinthians that precedes this letter that the Lord preserved in his sovereign purpose. And there was also a letter that was written from the Corinthians to the Apostle Paul that is referenced in this particular letter. 
We know that communication is taking place. So there are some things about this particular section, I'm just kind of giving you fair warning, that we're not going to be able to land the plane with definitive clarity or certainty because it's, we weren't there. It's dealing with things that, that we were not involved in. But we'll try to kind of address it in as clear a way as possible as we move through this. But clearly, the Apostle Paul is raising a concern in this section, dealing with the roles of men and women within the context of the gathered church for worship. We know that for certain. We we can settle on that as a principle without any question. In fact, the first thing I would point you to is a crucial principle that we need to understand, because that's what the Apostle Paul does here. Using the indicative tense here, Verse 3, he says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, before he gets into all of the particulars that were specific to that context related to head coverings, no head coverings, hair length, hair as a, as a, a point of glory, Glory being offered up to God as a, as a way in which you come attired to worship, all these different things. Before he gets into that, he does state something, a principle, a crucial principle that he intends for us, for the Corinthians, and certainly for us to understand. And what he lays out here, if you didn't notice, is a very comprehensive and rather specific hierarchy that, if we're honest, regardless of how we were raised, regardless of convictions that we have have sown in our hearts and our minds based upon the teaching of Scripture, regardless of all that, if if we're honest, in some ways it it kind of pokes at our modern sensibilities, at least a little bit, right? We have to acknowledge that. The fact of the matter is, is that we are in a a season of our experience in our history and our culture in which the, uh, the epic long battle of the sexes is at new and exalted heights and levels of intensity. But it's been going on forever. John MacArthur, in the opening section of his commentary on this particular passage, says this. He says, and, this, and by the way, I think that he wrote the commentary, I believe that this one was published back in the 80s. He says, the role of women has become a battleground in society during the last several decades. The struggle for women's rights has escalated to a place of imbalance in society that threatens the future. In our day, the efforts to excuse me, the efforts of the enemy began with secular society and worked back into the church, which so often catches the world's diseases and adopts the spirit of the age. Some leaders and writers in the name of Christianity have gone so far as to teach principles that attempt to redefine or even alter biblical truths to accommodate the standards of contemporary thinking in the world. To do that, of course, They have to believe that Paul, Peter, and other scriptural writers added some of their own opinions to God's revealed truth, or that the apostles sometimes taught culturally determined customs 
rather than divinely revealed standards. When that approach is taken, man must decide for himself what part of Scripture is revealed and what is not, making him the judge over God's word. Satan feverishly tries to upset the divine order in any way he can, and one foundational way is by perverting male and female roles and relationships. We'll come back to that in a little bit. The fact of the matter is, though, that what we are contending with in our day and time, what has been so detrimental to the effective ministry and flourishing of many, 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 many churches, and certainly, as a, as a, as a direct correlation, many, many, many individual professing believers, are any range of adoptions of cultural, secular ideas about manhood and womanhood and about roles of men and women and how those are to be manifested in the context of Christian life in the body of Christ. And we've allowed our sensibilities to be shaped more by the culture rather than by Christ and his word. And we've placed our trust in ourselves rather than in the divine, consummately wise, profoundly loving God who created us, male and female. This battle of the sexes is reaching new and interesting dimensions. One salient and rather absurd example is that if you want to achieve male dominance, it's, if, if, that's your, if that's your thing, men, then one easy pathway now is just to decide you're a woman and enter, to enter into sports competition in women's sports. It's so interesting to me to see how the very nature of these ideologies, that many of which are rooted in, in feminist ideology, are decimating women. This is the work of the destroyer. This kind of weaving, crafty deception that ultimately is intended to destroy, this is what we're seeing. In the, for the sake of tolerance, for the sake of letting people be who they really are, it's, find, it's found its way into the created order of manhood and womanhood, it's turned the whole concept inside out, and it's wreaking its destructive havoc in society. We don't even need to begin to talk about what this is doing to children. This, this ideology that in many ways, not exclusively, but in many ways, is rooted in a feminist sort of reaction to what certainly has been godless male treatment of women through the years and even through the centuries, is interestingly addressed by a lady named Belinda Brown. By the way, I'll just go ahead and say this. Some of the best instruction and insight that I have found on the matters that we're going to be dealing with have been written by women. This is another example. Belinda Brown wrote an article 
in 2018 entitled, A Young Person's Guide to the Failures of Feminism. Let me just pull that up for us here. Let me, listen, let me read the article for us. She says, a young woman wrote to our publication asking what our main reasons are for, what are the main reasons, my goodness, this article got totally cut off. Let me see if I can pull it up again. This is such a good article. You guys talk amongst yourselves for a minute. That's right. This is a government hack right here. Oh, this is really frustrating. I'm determined to get this article pulled up. All right, we're in business. Here we go. Okay. So I don't know how dramatic my introduction to the article was, but just kind of get back into that mode. Feel the drama leading up to the article, the reading of the article. Are we there? Are we all kind of in it? All right, here we go. So here's the article. A young woman wrote to this publication asking what our main reasons are for opposing feminism. After pondering a smorgasbord of possibilities, I settled on the fallacious nature of feminism's foundational myths. No good can come from an ideology built on lies. The first fallacy is that there are no real differences between women and men in aptitude, interests, psychology, nor motivation. Differences are socially and culturally constructed out of superficial physiological differences. This belief justifies endless measures to ensure that women are equally represented in every single area of desirable status or work. When I read that, I thought about this, and obviously this is a, this is a familiar mantra to, to all of you, I'm sure. But what I had this vision in my mind, not a vision from God, just this vision, imagination, okay? <laughs> Believe me, when you hear this, you'll know it's not a vision from God. But I, I, this, this is what kind of I imagined in my mind. I thought, what if I told the class, divide up, I want men on one side and men on the other side of the room. And the, the, the object, your, your objective that you must do is you must conquer and rule the room. First pass, it has to be completed in five minutes. Men over here, women over here. Now, what do you think would happen? I'll tell you what would happen. The men would physically dominate the women and control them physically. And women, don't take this personally, but I doubt it would take five minutes. Are you offended by that? Do you want to arm wrestle? Do you understand what I'm saying? The absurdity of like no differences? I mean, that's a silly, simple exercise alone. Now, if I were to say, divide up men and women, and your objective 
is to seize control of the room, but you have five years to do it. The women would rule. (laughs) Through cleverness, through persuasive communication, through appeal, through intelligence. I mean, they, they would end up ruling the room. Men could get it done in less than five minutes through force, but do you see what I'm saying? Like this, this absurdity of, of not recognizing, that's why the Apostle Paul will go to this matter of nature. But there is this movement and this young girl who submitted this question, and its foundational premise is a lie. The whole edifice then has to crumble. She says the trouble is that while men and women are much more similar than different, there are differences. These differences matter. They shape who we are as men and women in significant ways. The denial of these differences has made it difficult for young men and women to build relationships. Now listen to this. This is a very insightful counsel to this young woman. It's made it difficult, excuse me, I lost my place, for young women, men and women, to build relationships. Women expect men to be like them, and it creates disappointment when they respond in unpredictable, non-female ways. It is meant that we teach children in schools that gender is a choice, and when we wonder at the numbers suffering from gender dysphoria, excuse me, and then we wonder at the numbers suffering from gender dysphoria. Another founding fallacy of feminism is that patriarchy is an oppressive, exploitative system created by men for their own advantage. This is a woman writing this. This is a surprising interpretation of a system in which men were the ones who fought and were killed in battles, had the burden of supporting families, and did the toughest and most grueling types of work. You ever thought about that? The patriarchy. Actually, Our Western patriarchy was a system designed to serve and benefit women by tying men into work and the family. As patriarchy dissolves, it is not women who benefit, but men who are freed from the expectations to support a family and from sexual restraints as well. Welcome to our time. Be that as it may, the idea of patriarchy as a system designed to oppress women, has been the most potent weapon in the feminist armory. It justifies the ongoing creation of an awful lot of special advantages for women if you believe you have been oppressed and exploited since the beginning of time. And we women can be forgiven if we fail to notice when it is our oppressors who are, as a result, doing badly throughout the education system and are more likely to be taking drugs, be excluded from families, committing suicide, or sleeping on the streets. The third fallacy of feminism, which I see rooted in the historical circumstances which produced feminism, is the belief that the public realm of politics, employment, and status is of greater value and importance than what goes on in the community, family, and home. This is about values. This is about what people deem to be most important. Not about equality. Not about status. Not about equal pay for equal work. That's just the deceptive surface layer that lures people in with devastating consequence.
it emerges from the top down, this, this idea of public realm of employment and status of greater value rather than community, family, and home. It emerges from the top down. Marxist vision of society where relations of production are pivotal. This underpins feminist logic, which has put so much focus on getting women out of the family, into work, and into the highest realms of politics. In fact, it is the relations of reproduction which should be central, which our systems of employment and politics should be serving. But feminism has demoted the family and made it secondary. This has incurred a dreadful cost. Young women are under pressure not just to work but to have careers. This has consequences for family formation and fertility further down the line. Feminism, by promoting work, abolishing the marriage tax allowance and creating a system of benefits and tax credits, this is a British article, by the way, just so you know, institutionalized the dual-income family as well as the lone parent working family. This contributed towards inflation in house prices and elsewhere with the result that all women, but particularly mothers, are much more likely to be in the workforce. In the past, when women had children, unless they were extremely poor, they could stay at home and look after them. Not just when they were babies, but when they were three or four or even older. Now children spend most of their waking lives in childcare facilities or schools. How will they learn the meaning of family and home? We are reaping the whirlwind. We're now into multiple generations of this kind of reality where kids are growing up and becoming adults and just living out what they've learned and what they've seen and what they've absorbed, and we're reaping the whirlwind. I haven't touched on the effects of cohabitation encouraged by the decline in male income. This accounts for over half of a family breakdown, which is estimated to cost taxpayers 51 billion British pounds sterling in benefit payments, custodial sentencing, mental health services, and many other costs. And that is without factoring in the emotional pain incurred to men and their children with growing up by growing up in fatherless homes. What about all the benefits of feminism, I hear you ask? Firstly, there has been a significant rewriting of history to promote feminist claims. This has involved greatly downplaying the disadvantages which afflicted the vast majority of men and the access which women who really desired it have to education and careers. Secondly, many of the legislative changes which have done so much to contribute toward a feminist utopia, the Robbins Report... The, the Abortion Act of 1967, the Divorce Reform Act, were, as Neil Linden explains, conceived and implemented before feminism properly got underway. In fact, a great many of the really beneficial changes would have been brought about by democracy or belief in equal opportunities. These changes did not require feminism, as Elizabeth Hobson explains. Thirdly, the changes which have most benefited our quality of living, such as endless wonderful household appliances, and the internet have nothing to do with feminist ideology but the application of science and technology for which a bit more credit needs to go to men. Feminism has encouraged a greater involvement of men in childcare. However, this is only to the point that it enables women to carry on building their careers. When it comes to giving fathers the same rights and status as mothers, which is 
what is really required to increase paternal involvement, what feminists take away is greater than what they give. The most generous thing I can say about feminism is that it was a social experiment, and as such, there is a great deal that we can learn from it about the differences between men and women, the importance of the family, and nature of patriarchy, things which were not consciously articulated or which we didn't know before. But as an experiment, it has failed abysmally. Women are much less happy. Children are suffering enormously. Our productivity is declining. And if I'm to believe all that I read, the behavior of men has deteriorated hugely from when I was young, and incidents of rape and sexual harassment have gone up. Your mothers and grandmothers have invested in feminism, whether through personal decisions or through livelihoods, which all too often depended directly or indirectly on a feminist system. These women will not help to dismantle a system on which they have built their lives. Young people are the chief victims of feminism. You need to carry on asking questions, researching feminism and the history which lies behind it. We need you to be brave and rebellious and to challenge the systems and beliefs which you have been taught in your schools and maybe your families because no less than the survival of Western civilization depends on your doing so. That's what we have gotten. That's where we are as a society. As the article indicated, the impact has been egregious, particularly for men, and more specifically, young boys, and I know I've been reading a lot, but just a few more things here. This is a portion of an article written in February of 2022 by Andrew Yang, a Washington Post article. The title of the article is, The Data Are Clear, The Boys Are Not All Right. He says, here's one of the biggest problems facing America. Boys and men across all regions and ethnic groups have been failing, both absolutely and relatively, for years. This is catastrophic for our country. The data are clear. Boys are more than twice as likely as girls to be diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. They're five times as likely to spend time in juvenile detention and are less likely to finish high school. Unfortunately, it doesn't get better when boys become adults. Men now make up only 40.5% of college students. Male community college enrollment declined by 14.7% in 2020 alone, compared with 6.8% for women. Median wages for men have declined since 1990 in real terms. Roughly one-third of men are either unemployed or out of the workforce. More U.S. men ages 18 to 34 are now living with their parents than with romantic partners. Economic transformation has been a big contributor. More than two-thirds of manufacturing workers are men. The sector has lost more than 5 million jobs since 2000. That's a lot of unemployed men. Not just coincidentally, deaths of despair, those caused by suicide, overdose, and alcoholism, have surged to unprecedented levels among middle-aged men over the past 20 years. Research shows that one significant factor women look for in a partner is a steady job. As men's unemployment rises, their romantic prospects decline. Unsurprisingly, according to a Pew Research Center analysis of data from 1960 to 2010, the proportion of adults without a college degree who marry plummeted from just over 70% to roughly 45%. 
Many boys are thus often growing up raised by single mothers, the share more than doubling between 1980 and 2019, from 18% to 40%. A study from 2015 found that as more boys grow up without their father in the home and as women are viewed as the more stable achievers, boys and girls alike may come to see males as having a lower achievement orientation. College becomes something that many girls, but only some boys, do. Yes, men have long had societal advantages over women and in some ways continue to be treated favorably, but male achievement alongside that of women is a condition for a healthy society and male failure begets male failure to society's detriment. This is where we are. Sorry I read so much, but when we come to a passage like this that sort of flies in the face of the modern mindset, where we want to talk about equality, or we, we kind of get a, a sense of offense when there's some notion of hierarchy or distinction, And yet we fail to just look around and see the fruit of not yielding to God's pattern and design. I can tell you with great confidence that churches and families and homes that come together and submit to what God's word teaches about the roles of men and women in the life of the church not only produce flourishing ministries where the gospel is clearly articulated and proclaimed so that people, in hearing it, will be exposed to what is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Not only is that the case, but in our fallen world, when there are churches and homes and families that understand this and engage properly around these truths in life in the church and life in their homes, then they become a haven and a resource, and a place of help and refuge in scenarios where there is brokenness, where there are single-parent families that need to be ministered to and cared for, where there are children who are growing up without fathers. The church and men in the church can become the example of fatherhood in these broken situations. In every way that you look at this, there's a clarion call for God's people to understand, even in the particulars, why God would call us to understand these distinctions and to operate in them with great freedom, with tremendous joy, and complete trust and confidence in His goodness and His provision and His purpose. The alternative is for us to shift our trust and our confidence into the world which says, get what you can get. Be your own person. Claim your rights. Don't come under anyone's hand under any circumstances. This is a lie. And what we can see from this passage, even specifically at the jump, the way the Apostle Paul speaks of this in verse 3, he says, I want you to understand everyone has a head. That's the thrust of verse 3. It's not just some feminine oppression kind of verse here. Everyone is under a head. Man is under Christ. Woman, the wife is under her husband, and Christ is under God the Father. 
We are talking about a transcendent principle that is merely going to be illustrated with local cultural context. We cannot miss the transcendency of the way this principle is stated, though. What often happens amongst biblical interpreters who want to go in a different direction from what the text clearly teaches, who would be advocating for more of what we see in the world and its attitudes and and, and thinking around these matters, it wants to confine this to all, all of this to a cultural context that doesn't have implication or application fully to our day and our time. We'll talk about that as we move through this study. But verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, there is a crucial principle that you must understand. And I'm going to state it in such a way that it is unmistakable. Headship and authority and hierarchy is how I created you. And it is such a part of of the nature and character and purpose of God, that it exists even within the Godhead. I don't know how you can confine that to first century cultural context. We can easily unpack and clearly know what we're contending with, and I want to kind of set our context even back in the created order of things. When you look at the creation account, particularly when you look at Genesis chapter 2, where the narrative of creation zeroes in like a microscope on the creation of man and woman. Obviously, you have the order of creation and the creation days in chapter 1, but then in chapter 2, it becomes more focused on the creation of man and woman and his purpose and what God instructed him to do and to be. You pick up the narrative in chapter 2, verse 15, and it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now this command was given to the man. When you fast forward to Genesis chapter 3 and you see the account of The serpent and his conversation with Eve, where was Adam? Where was his protection? God gave him this responsibility. God gave him this command. He goes on. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is a reference point that we're going to look at in this text. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 25 a reference to the absence of shame 
in the presence of complete and total vulnerability and exposure. This, this is where it all began. You, you don't have Eve being created and, and created as a, a helper to Adam and being created out of Adam and immediately saying, where are my rights? You know, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you let me kind of run the whole you know, exercising protection to not fall under this command to not partake of them. I mean, why, where, where's my, you know, where's my equality here? There was a complete, perfect communion that existed. So when you think about the instruction that we're going to be looking at, the call of the believer in Christ is a call to redeem what has been lost. To be about the business of gospel redeeming life. Calling people to recognize this is what God has said. This is how God has designed us. This is what we are called to. And the essence of it, when you see it pre-fall, you see it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's pleasant and it's joyous. And yet we find ourselves so inoculated, we're so influenced by the cultural streams that we have a hard time even talking in these terms publicly. We can be embarrassed to talk explicitly about what Scripture talks about explicitly, especially when it touches on some of these sensitive cultural issues. Sadly, you get to Genesis chapter 3, the, the, the fruit is taken, the forbidden fruit is taken, the man and the woman hide, God confronts them, and in verse 16 of chapter 3, he says, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your, ch- your pain and childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, or for your husband, that's a translation matter there that we don't have time to deal with, but... Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now listen, men, that is not a command to not ever listen to your wife. Understand the context. Who was given the command and thereby given the responsibility to protect, to instruct, to make sure the command was obeyed? It was Adam. God entrusted him with this, and he failed miserably. In listening to his wife, he failed miserably. That's the point. And therefore... He experiences this curse where the ground will be cursed and he he will labor by the sweat of his brow. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And this is where we are now. This is the world that we're living in now. Men and women, husbands and wives, we're at odds. We're at odds. And it's not... 
The, the problem is not inequality. The problem is the absence of submission, first and foremost, to the God who made us. And secondly, submission to what he has called us to in our respective roles, both of which are unique and distinct, and because they were designed by God, are necessarily and absolutely beautiful, wondrous, to be honored, to be amplified as a means of trying to redeem what has been lost. We're going to be entering into a a study here where we're going to really try to unpack these principles because, as I'm sure you know and can already pick up on where where my thinking is on some of this as I've read some of these articles, and I think that the text makes that crystal clear as well, it is not just enough for men and women in the church to just try to be faithful and the individual points of obedience that God has called us to. Particularly when you think about the testimony that we are to have to a watching world. What the world needs to see are men and women who understand how God has made them and are walking in that with joy because they trust and love Him more than they love themselves, more than they are crying for their rights or they're demanding their place. And we need men who understand what it means to be responsible for what God has called us to. It's not an overlording responsibility, but it is a responsibility of leadership. It's a responsibility of protection. It's a responsibility of instruction, even. The sad reality, and we, these statistics that I read about the boys are not all right, well, you can, you can find this in the life of the church as well. This is not exclusive to the big bad world out there. We have many, many, many men who are not taking responsibility. How on earth can men protect from false ideology if you don't really know the truth. We have many, many, many men who have not taken up the mantle to know and understand God and His Word and to deeply root the truths of God's Word into their hearts and their minds so that they can be what God has called them to be. We have many, many, many men who would rather engage in all manner of trivial entertainment than to be men who understand the calling that's on their life simply because God has made them male. And particularly in the life of the church. What we know to be true is that to the extent that men fail at this responsibility, women rise up because they have to. Women do fill the gap, and they find themselves taking on responsibility that should be carried by men who are not doing what they're called to do. You'll notice as we get to the end of this section in this chapter, the Apostle Paul brings clarity and balance to this when he points to the complete interdependency that we share. 
This is not sort of an independent operation where you have your job and I have my job. He, he says, no, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. This is us understanding God has made us like this. He has called us to these unique roles and responsibilities. And we need to joyfully, willingly, consistently be men of God and be women of God and bring glory to God in our corporate worship as we manifest those God-given roles and responsibilities in our manhood and in our womanhood. Well, as you can tell, we've got a lot to unpack. That's just part 1A of a pretty intense study and discussion but I trust you'll be back and ready to kind of dive into this more specifically as we seek to be faithful to obey God's word. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would help us as we seek to know and understand what you've called us to. There are so many deceptions out there. There are so many different messages that we have imbibed and we've even subtly just kind of settled into in our thinking. And we can be fearful, or we can be frustrated, or we can be easily provoked by your teaching around these matters. We can be challenged by our own experiences of very, very godless, poor models of manhood and womanhood that we have encountered. And so I pray that you would sort of clear the air and clear our minds as we move into this and help us to see the beauty and wonder of your created work. And I pray that in such a crucial time as this, that you would continue to raise us up as godly men and women whose lives, both individually and collectively, as as we come together as the worshiping body, reflect the character and glory of God with crystal clarity. I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.